You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, a podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. This episode was first published on Thursday, the 21st of April, 2016. You can find show notes linking to everything we talk about in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. So we've reached episode 10 of Mech's Design Talk, and we wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting and providing feedback. Do please keep getting in touch. You can reach us on Twitter at MexFeed, uh, or have a look at mobileuserexperience.com, and you'll find other ways like uh, email to get in touch with us if you'd like to give us your thoughts on how we've been doing so far with the show and things that you'd like to hear in the future. This edition, I hope, will prove to be uh, a fascinating one for our listeners. Alex and I are thinking about this theme of artificial intelligence, and in particular, how it intersects with user experience practices, and how that combination uh, is going to be at the core of so many of our future digital services. And we're joined by Nathan Benesh, who is a partner at Playfair Capital. Now, Playfair specializes in investing in companies in this area uh, and also has done a lot around building the community uh, of these companies in London, where they're based, um, both among their portfolio companies and academics and all of the other members of the community that are involved in making these advances in artificial intelligence happen. Uh, And we go on to have uh, an intriguing discussion with Nathan uh, about some of the things that are happening specific to artificial intelligence and machine learning and how those might be applied to robotics, but particularly uh, about ways in which that can be combined with design approaches and user-centered design in particular uh, to really improve the quality of the digital experiences that are going to be developed over the next several years. Here's the interview. I hope you enjoyed. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Alex Guest, the co-host. Alex, how's life treating you this morning? Good morning, Marek. Uh, life is good, thanks. It's another beautiful day here. I'm glad to hear it. Also very glad that we are joined by a guest uh, for today's show, Nathan Benech, who is an investor with Playfair Capital. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mark. Alex. Great to be here. So tell us a, a little bit about your role at Playfair so that people can understand the kind of perspective you're coming from on this, Nathan. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so just, I guess, a little bit of background on us. So we're an early stage um, venture capital firm, which means that we essentially seek out some of those brilliant entrepreneurs um, building technology companies that, broadly speaking, change the way that we live, work, and, and play. And so my role really there is to seek out new entrepreneurs, build relationships, relationships with them, um, learn more about their businesses and what problems they're, they're looking to tackle. Um, then when we figure out whether... It's a candidate for making an investment. Um, I'm involved in, in leading the diligence there um, and then executing the investment after which if we're lead investors, um, <clears throat> I can sit on the board with the founders. Um, if it's uh, an investment where we participate in a round with a multitude of other parties, then in that case, we're, we're sometimes a bit less involved at the board level, but um, still very keen to essentially help founders build their teams and think about how they should be building and growing their product um, and also helping with um, follow-on financings. So we like to take a very active role with investing in companies. We often find that writing the check is the, the most boring and mundane part. Um, we're really excited about um, product building and, and ideation um, and really trying to seek um, value creation in markets. So that's uh that's, that's my role there. So very much end-to-end from finding investments to actually helping grow companies. 
Yeah, and that's one of the things which has struck me about Playfair and the interactions that uh, we've had with you guys is um, that more active role that you play in yeah. helping to build the companies and the communities, and particularly around this area of artificial intelligence and machine learning, which uh, yeah. I suppose is our um, ulterior motive for inviting you onto the podcast today, because we've been thinking a bit about this for a while as well, and where that intersects with uh, user-centered design practice and and how those two things are coming together and starting to shape some of the the new um, digital prospects out there. So that, I suppose, is going to end up being our our topic um, for the podcast. And in uh, the tradition that we're establishing with um, these three-way discussions between uh, Alex, myself, and, and guests, we thought we'd try and get things started with a few examples um, where we've been off uh, in advance and done a bit of homework to select some personal examples around this area of artificial intelligence and how it relates to design thinking um, to get the conversation going. Uh, and then we're going to be talking to Nathan a bit more about his role and some of the companies that he's seeing in this area and some of the ways this is developing. Um, now, Alex, I know that you have been hard at work here looking for an example. So may I pick on you first to um, tell us a bit about what you have found in relation to uh, to artificial intelligence? Well, Mark, um, way, way back when I was in my teens, uh, my parents lived in Japan and uh, I would uh, travel back from the UK uh, holiday times to, to, to spend time, obviously, with the family. And um, uh, living in Japan, I, I, I had a fascinating experience, and, and part of that was just seeing a culture that was very different to, to what was going on in the West, uh, and an economy that was really, in some ways, much more advanced, um, despite everything that, that has happened with the Japanese economy in the past sort of 20 years or so. Um, but part of, part of what we saw there, and, and you know, one of the things that I, I visited at the time was a, a, a Nissan factory, and, and bear in mind, this is back in the 80s. Um, where I saw uh, for the first time uh, robotic arms on a car assembly line where human labor had been replaced by machines. And uh, these machines were absolutely incredible. They, they had these lifelike arms that were building cars uh, right in front of your eyes. Um, absolutely fascinating to, to a teenage boy uh, at that time. It, it, it was, it was sci-fi for real. Um, call it sci-fact, I suppose. Um, and uh, I guess this is probably not these days considered artificial intelligence because of of the limitations of these machines. They're, they're programmed, and, and then they they did some stuff. They didn't, I suppose, really learn for themselves. Um, but but we can sort of trace really a a, a line of development, um, which I suppose begins with with simple things like um, uh, I don't know things like washing machines, for example, where Part of what uh, human labor uh, is involved in gets replaced by by some sort of machine, and, and all the way back in the 18th century, we had some form of washing machine, and and once they had electricity going through them, obviously we had we had automated washing machines starting in in the 30s, um, and, and now of course things have moved substantially further, um, and and we sort of ask ourselves, or at least I ask myself, what exactly is artificial intelligence today? And what is it that we mean by intelligent behavior? So I'm hoping that uh, I'll, I'll learn some, some more about that in the course of today. It is an interesting question, as you say, quite um, to go back and trace that initial motivation. And, you know, certainly those kind of robots that you would have seen in the 80s in um, the, the Nissan factories there no doubt have been superseded many times in terms of the actual um, raw computing power behind them and the kind of capabilities that they have. But that uh, original motivation of trying to replace human labor in some form, which allows it to not just um, replace but also then exceed and improve upon would seem to be a sort of founding principle of, of what people are trying to achieve with this area. Um, now, of course, there are some questions about the, the semantics of it. Perhaps this is something that Nathan can help with because we talk about um, the idea of machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, and straying even into things like robotics, often in quite uh, an interchangeable way. Um, but when you're looking at companies uh, in this area, Nathan, do you make distinctions uh, which go beyond the semantic between those different areas? Do you see them as, as distinct things? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an important um, question to bring up because, you know, as you say, the, the media 
meshes the two together and depending on um, which which types of individuals you, you speak to within the space, whether they're researchers or um, or engineers building companies or, or journalists, they'll, they'll use those two terms more or less interchangeably. So, the, you know, the, the way I see AI is really just the field of building computer systems that can underland, understand and learn from observations that, that we give the machines uh, in order to create outputs without the algorithms used to create those outputs be necessarily handcrafted. Um, so really, the, the, you know, the goal is for systems to perform increasingly human-like um, cognitive functions um, by learning from, from data. Um, now, within that umbrella term, you have a number of core technologies that feed into it to enable it um, to happen, um, one of which is machine learning, um, which then segments into a number of uh, of subdomains, um, whether that's deep learning or um, classical um, supervised machine learning or reinforcement learning, um, other um, technologies within that enable AIs, for example, robotics, as, as, as we talked about just now. Um, now, in terms of segmentation, I think it's uh, I think it's important to just look at specifically the um, the problem domain that, that we're talking about and then considering what technologies are important for building tools within that problem domain. Um, and so there's the specific approaches that are better suited to the types of data one would see in a robotics problem versus an image recognition problem versus um, a speech problem. Um, and so, so while there is a lot of hype in, in one technology over another, depending on what time point in history we, we, we look at, um, really it's about considering the right technology for the right problem space. And so that's the, that's the way that we look at segmentation. Okay. Now, I know that you've also um, been thinking about an example um, to give us a bit more of a sort of practical uh, shape around this, this question. Um, what was it that you've come yeah. up with for this? Yeah, so I've been... Um, I've been scouring a lot of literature for the last um, few years, probably just because I, from my academic background, it's something that I, that I really um, enjoy. And so the, 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 the piece that I'd like to talk about is a, is a publication from two authors from Google. Um, it's called Planet, and it's a photo geolocation um, software, which, which uses um, a new approach to machine learning called deep learning. Uh, specifically convolutional neural networks. And essentially, that's just the idea that uh, machines can understand uh, what's going on in an image and what entities, uh, what objects are expressed in that image um, to try and um, essentially learn something about them. And so why I think this, this, this particular problem is important is that um, it's essentially um, search and, and knowledge retrieval and it, re it relates to knowledge work. And that's something that... Um, you know, we as humans conduct uh, every day, and I think it's a very tangible example for for how machine learning uh, and broadly speaking AI can really enhance um, enhance that task. And so, in this in this particular problem, um, <clears throat> we consider uh, the issue of being presented with a photograph and then trying to automatically um, geolocate the position of that photograph. Uh, and so, uh, one can think of an example where whereby I'm giving an, uh, given an image of, of the Eiffel Tower um, and, and the space around it, and I ask somebody, where is that picture taken? Um, now, in traditional, in traditional um, approaches, uh, in computer science, one would consider this as an information retrieval problem. And so at a basic level, uh, one would have a database whereby um, there's metadata, so terms associated with features in that image, and the distinctive feature in that image is an Eiffel Tower. And... The only two places in the world, there are probably a few more, but the only two places in the world where that exists is Paris and France and Las Vegas and Nevada. Um, and so depending on um, the other features around um, the Eiffel Tower and that image, um, the correct response would be, would be Paris. But um, if you think about <clears throat> the broader problem of, of, of feeding any image into a system and trying to geolocate it, it becomes far too complex for a traditional uh, image retrieval problem. Um, and, and one of the features that uh, humans have that machines don't have is, is this idea of world knowledge that we can apply on. So we, you know, we consider heuristics like what is the language on street signs? Uh, in that image, um, you know, have we perhaps been to that place before? You know, are people dressed in a certain way that in, that indicates that they're from a certain country over another? Um, now, it's very hard to encode all of these uh, these features, this knowledge representation um, that humans have 
uh, into a machine by hand coding all of those features. And so th these authors wanted to come up with a generalizable system uh, whereby, whereby a machine could uh, learn to extrapolate these features and return a geolocation. Um, and so their approach is really to take um, the Earth uh, and subdivide it into a set of 26,000 geographical cells. So you can imagine that these are boxes, tiles that surround the entire Earth. Um, and then use uh, a, ge a geotagged uh, database of 126 million photographs um, that are essentially layered over, uh, over the world and train this class of, of deep learning algorithm on these images such that specific features that were recognized by the algorithm were associated with, uh, with that geographical cell. And then what happens is uh, at runtime when a user will uh, query uh, the algorithm for the geolocation of any image um, in, a, in, a, in a test set, uh, the model essentially outputs uh, probability distribution over the Earth um, representing the likelihood that that image um, that they ask what geolocation it has is located in any particular cell around the world. Um, I think this has really interesting ramifications for the user experience angle because we're all very used to querying Google and querying other um, software services in natural language, so in written language, i.e., you know, where where might um, where might the Eiffel Tower be in the world, and, and, and Google would output, you know, Las Vegas or Paris. Um, but I think that as we as we develop increasingly powerful um, technologies that can learn representations of of, of data and, and and extract understanding from multimedia, so in, in images and video and, and even speech, I think that the way in which we we interact with that data through software is going to go beyond just querying by natural language, but will instead be querying by inputting images or, or speaking or inputting videos. It is a really um, interesting inflection so, point that we're reaching with that. And my understanding is that uh, for Google in particular, um, these kind of neural network techniques now are becoming more widespread in the kind of results that they're returning to users. Although um, the actual absolutely. interface that we experience Google through hasn't changed all that much, a great deal has happened in the background over the last year or two in terms of how they surface that those results using these kind of techniques and uh, I mean as you say that there is a, a kind of fundamental change going on here this is no longer just about using like brute force computing power there is um, well perhaps the word is uh, intelligence there's a, a lot more sophistication going on as to how they make the decisions about what the right kind of search result is whether it's visually or, or, uh, or otherwise um, do you think that, that the average um, user on the street is yet aware that that change has, has happened, that there is a, a conscious awareness that the quality of results or the level to which you can predict um, the particular result it is that someone is after when they, they search through something like Google? Do you think people are aware that um, that is improving through these neural network techniques or is it just a, a sort of invisible um, improvement in the experience which they're, they're, they're getting incrementally? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really great question. Um, I, th I think it's more incremental um, than it is, um, you know, an order of magnitude uh, from one day to to the next or from one month to the next. Although one could argue that um, that the improvements in speech recognition and uh, in Google's voice recognition service have actually been quite material from the point at which they they move from um, statistical methods to uh, to deep learning methods. But I think in the in the general public, you know, it is um, um, it is a gradual experience um, because <clears throat> because the the sort of the fidelity of the search results that are returned are really on the basis of of, of either prior experience or just studying how users input queries, um, how they click on results, and um, and uh, you know how how we can tune that sort of active learning paradigm, which is you know, machine outputs result in response to a human query and then and then the humans sort of learn to input their results differently to sort of represent knowledge and, and represent their question in a way that's 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 more or less understood by by machines in the way that they think that machines understand um, search queries. And so so I think that um, it is it is it is far more gradual, but uh, but if we then you know cast back to how Search was conducted, um, you know, ten years ago. Then, um, over a longer time frame, then it does it does look 
you know, significantly different. And so I think it's, it kind of goes to this idea of accelerating returns and exponential, uh, exponential growth, where if you look at a very narrow, um, small time scale, then, then the gradient of an exponential uh, looks more or less linear. Um, but then if the longer time period you look at, um, then you start to see, um, see, see the exponential gradient. And so, yeah, I, I would say that in the general public, it's, it's more or less um, incremental. What do you think about this, Alex? Is this something which excites you, this notion that we um, can start to, to ask questions of the digital environment in a much more natural uh, and intelligent way than we've been able to do in the past and, and how that then raises the possibilities of the kind of experiences you can create for people? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think, as Nathan, you were saying just there, the... Um, the way that we have learnt to use search engines in the last, uh, say, 20 years um, ha- has very much been, let's try and figure out how I can phrase my, my search in such a way that I get the result that I'm after. Uh, you, you know, tw- 20 years ago, if, if you'd said, you know, um, uh, how do I uh, cook perfect scrambled eggs, you'd get an absolutely nonsense uh, return from, from, from Google or any search engine because there were there were just too many words there and, and the way search was, was set up didn't make sense for that. Now, um, and, and in fact, I feel like I ought to try this, uh, that exact search term, but it's, it's more likely that you'll get a decent, decent return and you'll actually get pointed to, to uh, a, a website or a site or even Google might even provide the answer itself um, as, to, as to how to cook perfect scrambled eggs. And, and now that, that is, that is uh, a, a very mundane question. But actually, the most of the questions that Google is asked are mundane questions, and and um, and and so the fact that we can now begin to ask simple questions of this kind in natural ways uh, it just means that we 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 take out that um, that uh, that point in our experience where we have to slow down our thinking in order to deal with machines. In fact, we can just be completely normal and human because the machine has become less machine-like. Yeah, and as you start to get an accumulation of those moments during the day, the overall effect on the way in which you interact with the digital world as a whole, I think could be quite substantial. I mean, I've experienced this at a very practical, mundane level myself with Google Photo Search. Uh, I now have all of my devices set so that they synchronize photos to Google Photo Search in the background. They're using these neural network techniques now to be able to identify those in uh, a much smarter way. Um, And typically, my sort of workflow for finding a photo from two or three years ago that I particularly wanted to get my hands on would have been literally scrolling back through thousands of images to roughly the sort of date when I knew it was taken. Or maybe if I was particularly sophisticated, I would be thinking, well, I kind of know it was taken around this area so I can look at the little map display and find it on there. But the other day I had an example of this where the only thing I could remember about the photo was that it contained a picture of a yellow sailing boy. Uh, and I could go into Google Photos and just type yellow into the thing and it would go through and find all the photos which had a high degree of yellow content in there. And I was able to narrow down into that photo I was looking for in literally a matter of seconds, where before that would have been like, you know, probably a 10 or 15 minute exercise of manually trawling through things. And if you start to think about the accumulation of those features uh, over, you know, the average day, um, you start to realize that although... Uh, visually, the kind of interfaces that we're using to interact with this stuff at the moment haven't changed that much yet. The net effect on the user experience, I think it is going to be quite substantial. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a terrific example. Um, and I think it's probably one of the, the ones that's just most tangible for, um, for users. And, you know, and then the point you bring up on, you know, the, um, the impact on user experience is even, is even more key because, you know, as I look as, as to how the software industry has, has evolved and even the hardware industry, actually, it's, it's becoming increasingly um, easier and cheaper to start companies and to build products and to launch them and get you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of, of early adopters, which then, which then really, really means that either you're, you're inventing something completely new, which, um, which we all know is incredibly difficult, um, or you're, you're creating you know, permutations or, or slight changes on, on models that already exist and trying to create increasingly enriching experiences for your users. And, and if you get it wrong, 
um, you know, you no longer have the benefit of, of having a second chance or a third chance because the user can very easily move on to uh, to an equivalent product, an adjacent product, which which may be you know a slight um, uh, a slight change in taste on on, on the product you've built, um, and and if they get the experience right and they get that 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 delivery of value on the first um, on the first task that's um, that you know that the software is is is, uh, is trying to trying to solve for the user, um, then you know the user is more inclined to to stay with that service, and, and and it's very hard for you to to attract them back, and so. So I think yeah, a topic that, that I'm really interested in is the, is the intersection with with using using AI and, and an understanding for how um, a user segment will behave to try and create the most compelling out of the box experience for a new user, um, because that way I think we can reduce. It, it seems to raise some really fascinating possibilities. I mean, when you I guess boil this down to first principles, it seems that we're getting to this point where um, Digital previously was synonymous with um, very discrete interactions. You know, they were essentially built from ones and zeros, and they were either on or off, and it, it was a very um, structured kind of an environment. But in doing a bit of research for this, one of the examples that I came across, uh, I think, speaks a little bit to how that's changing to a much subtler set of, of potential interactions, which, as you say, I think have that, that long-term effect on the user experience. And this was an example around um, how uh, some researchers at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, um, Bamman and Smith, uh, have found uh, a way of being able to detect, with about an 85% success rate, the presence of sarcasm uh, on Twitter. So they looked through um, a whole bunch of, of tweets and were able to identify those which they knew to be sarcastic and then use that information to train their computer systems to be able to make decisions for itself based on um, whether or not someone was trying to be sarcastic. Now, when you think about um, how subtle uh, a notion sarcasm is, uh, once you can start to understand that in automated way with a relatively good degree of success uh, and think about then extrapolating those techniques across a number of different other areas, it does rather change the expectations that we as users can have of our digital systems, that they're no longer things which are simply um, capable of, of making very structured, discrete decisions. They're actually things which are, are capable of a, a degree of, of subtlety and customization according to the personality of each user, which I, I, yeah, I think raises some some quite interesting possibilities. Um, we will put links as well in the, the show notes to these different examples that we've talked about too. So do um, take a look at those on mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section in case you want to look at some of the, the background of these different examples from uh, Alex and, and Nathan and, and myself. What, one of the things I find particularly fascinating about this, this sarcasm example, Marek, is, is that uh, as everyone knows, sarcasm it, through through the uh, the medium of text, uh, particularly short text, is often misunderstood. Um, so, if a machine can understand sarcasm better than the human, then that becomes quite interesting it, as it well. It certainly does. I mean, it's the old adage, isn't it, that if um, you know you're trying to be sarcastic via email or via text message, you've really got to consider your audience carefully. And my understanding from the paper is that that's exactly how they um, they did this: is that their success rates increased incrementally as they started to add more information about what they knew about the relationship between um, the people sending the tweet, uh, what they knew about um, the kind of audience, the, the sort of background to how that person had tweeted in the past. And as they added in each of those different factors, I seem to remember the perhaps three or four different categories that they introduced gradually, the success rates obviously started to, to go up in that, you know, two people who know each other relatively well can probably detect that um, fairly well, especially if they're from the same kind of cultural background. But it's uh, perhaps something which the British uh, are more accustomed to than others, traveling the world, bringing their legendary cynicism and sarcasm with them and finding that other nations, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't fly in the way that it would do between two, uh, two British people. 
But it also clearly links with um, the recent Microsoft experiment, um, which, uh, well, I, I guess, Nathan, what's your take on, on that? Because there's been quite a lot of outrage uh, about Tay and, and how it uh, learned to be a, a, a uh, mm. well, really an unpleasant character. Uh, do you want to just give people a quick background <laughs> on, on Tay, Alex, for those who aren't um, familiar with, with what we're talking about? We will put a link in the show notes to it, but this is Microsoft's artificial intelligence uh agent as i understand is that is that right well that, that's right and 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 very briefly i mean through twitter it it began to learn how to interact with uh with people tweeting with it and um it seemed to pick up on the sorts of uh, language that were being used and it seemed to approve of them uh in, so that if if people talked about uh criminal activity in a positive way it would then uh Pick that up as, as a positive signal and begin to 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 approve of of criminal or or, or immoral or, or whatever other sorts of activities, um, to the point that it began to be a, an extremely unpleasant character, um, if we can use the term character here. And Nathan, I presume you've um, been aware of this. What does this do for the the image, if you like, of, of artificial intelligence to have this kind of big scale public experiment, which perhaps didn't work out quite as its creators imagined? Yeah, it's it's quite a risky uh, risky endeavor on, on their part on their on their behalf because it's it, you know it's very it's very well known that there's uh, you know, there's um, a panel of individuals on on the web that do like to to troll around and, and cause havoc, um, and I don't think there's any more open a platform than, than Twitter to do so. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I do think it was it's, it's very risky from from a PR standpoint. But um, I think what it what it what it shows is uh, is how malleable um, some of these general learning systems are, and and the importance of of having some kind of I don't want to say safeguard in a, in a, in a bad way, but just having some kind of, um, security rails such that, um, you know, an agent is properly tasked and informed with the types of, with, with the scenario and, and the, and the sort of realm in which it has to operate. Um, not, you know, in this case, it, I think Tay was supposed to speak and sound like a, um, like a, a, a millennial. Um, and so you can, you can imagine that it might pick up on, on some of these topics more than, um, more than a later stage adult would. But, um, but I think, you know, I think it's just more about just, just tuning these agents to be specifically, um, you know, experienced with us, with a, with a problem domain in question versus just kind of being let out in the wild, um, to, to fend for themselves, um, in an environment which is, which is clearly not always um, not always safer. So let's go back just a, a little bit, Nathan, because I'm keen to understand um, your route into this area and whether or not you went into it expecting that there were going to be things like uh, Microsoft's Tay out there or some of these other advances that, that we're seeing, um, and, and how it links with Playfair as well. I mean, was Playfair always set up with? this focus on artificial intelligence in mind and that was how your interest and, and their interest intersected to become part of the team there or is that something which has evolved more gradually over time yeah um i, th- I think the, you know the technology world evolves so quickly that um that you need to you need to have some you know intellectual flexibility as to how you think the world is going to it's going to shape um on the basis of what new innovations are coming in and 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 whether the macro environment is ripe for adopting those innovations, you know, looking at how cycles of innovation traditionally happen, timing is is, is really key. And so, the, the, you know, the genesis for our interest in this space has just been, um, you know, AR fascination with um, with data, and then what kinds of companies you can uh, you can build around data, whether that's democratizing access to it, building links between data silos, um, trying to extract more. Uh, understanding from it on the bit by using machines to accomplish tasks that would otherwise take humans, you know, hundreds of hours, if not years to do. Um, you know, in fact, uh, the first investment that, that our founder made was in a, a business called Doodle, which is entirely based on the premise of gathering as much um, data that's out in the public domain and in company, uh, in company registries to, you know, to understand 
um, what the private company landscape looks like um, in order to make more informed decisions as to, as to how people do business with private companies. Um, and then as we you know, delve deeper into this topic of, uh, or this class of work, it's called knowledge work, which is, um, you know, really using, using our minds and our, uh, and our intellectual capital to create, uh, to create value um, versus, um, versus creating physical products. Um, I think, you know, the, all these domains just, just involve so much information retrieval, so much information processing, uh, and, and otherwise manual tasks that, that are perfectly suited for, um, for, for machine learning based solutions. Um, you know, we talked about visual search and, and just general search. Um, but, uh, but just extracting knowledge out of, out of a corpus of information that's only growing uh, over time is, um, is, is, is so key to, to knowledge work in itself. And so it's, it's mainly been from, from that perspective. Um, and then as we delve deeper into you know, the enabling technologies that one would need to, to create um, solutions to, to empower knowledge workers in the, in the enterprise, whether that's you know, natural language processing to, under, to understand uh, and process written text, um, to, uh, to deep learning for understanding features and images, uh, that might be, um, you know, representing MRI scans or uh, or X-rays in the medical domain. You start to realize that these technologies kind of touch everything uh, that involves data, and so so we kind of just developed a thesis around core technologies that are um, that are enabling, uh, you know, the processing or the creation uh, of data services that that then empower, you know, an ecosystem of products um, that are built by companies using those core technologies. Um, and then on the other end, um, you know, an ecosystem of, of product-focused people who, who might not be engineering new concepts or engineering new core technologies, but are instead have, you know, this very granular insight into how their user base and how, um, whether that's consumers or enterprises, are interfacing with the products around them and trying to get about their day and, and complete, um, you know, a series of, of tasks that are involved in, in what is otherwise a complex complex value chain and how using um, these core technologies that are enabled by um, by machine learning, for example, can help create more fulfilling um, and experiential products that, that really get about um, that problem going from A to B for a, for a consumer or enterprise use case. Um, so that, that's the sort of how the thesis evolved and, and how we look at these two parts, which, which I think makes this conversation so interesting because it touches on... Uh, on user experience and interaction design um, on the on the front end, and then and then AI on the back end. So I guess I mean, as an investor, you must be looking obviously for sources of of competitive advantage at the most fundamental level with these different organizations and um, artificial intelligence and uh, an awareness of um, user-centered design practice would seem to, to fit into that that category. But when you think specifically about the artificial intelligence um, part of that, presumably um, not all of these systems are created equal. I know there are some common approaches to how these kind of uh, machine learning and neural networks in particular are implemented. But for you as investors, um, what degree of granularity do you go into as you start to evaluate just how good the machine learning or artificial intelligence capabilities behind a, a product are? How do you make that kind of judgment yourself to understand you know, whether or not it's a, a good investment prospect for you? Yeah. I mean, the, the tricky thing is that um, at our stage, um, we we often don't have complete products. We sometimes have um, just uh, minimal viable products, and so these are often, you know, perhaps just um, just prototypes of what could be accomplished using technologies that's been worked on by by the founders before. Um, and so, so really, we have to fall back on the technical competence of the individuals within the founding team versus the specific demo that might have been built when uh, when they were fundraising. Just because we're too early on the on the um, the company life cycle to have um, you know enough material to to really dive into. Um, and so there we, you know, we look very much for, for prior work, for prior examples of work, publications, reputation within an industry, um, and, uh, and just demonstrations of, of, uh, of value that, that's been created by those individuals in, in a prior, uh, in a prior endeavor that they were involved with. Um, if, if in the, in, in a situation 
um, where, where there is a product that's been built and, and, and the company's been, been alive for enough time for there to be material to DD, like we will dive into it. Uh, if it, if it becomes, you know, too technical for, for the, for the competence that we have on our team, um, that's where, uh, you know, we involve our, our network of, of academics and CTOs and data scientists within our community, um, that have specific ties to our fund, um, where, where they will have conversations on the, on more technical topics to, to essentially diligence, um, approaches, bottlenecks, um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, whether approaches are being taken that are, you know, different from, from what already exists, whether they're implementations of open source libraries, but where there's non-obvious modifications to them, um, that have been made that, that make the approach you know, more defensible than another. But, uh, but really over time, you know, technology becomes commoditized. And so, um, so one can only re- rely on it for, for so long. Um, I think it, you know, we, we need to, we need to have companies that, that focus on building experiential products that people genuinely want to use. Um, and then it's only by having that user involvement can one actually create an increasingly valuable experience for that user because, you know, we can have a great technology, but if there's no one there to use it, it sort of goes nowhere. Yeah, that, that intersection um, between um, how you evolve things using, I suppose, what you could call more traditional user-centered design principles and also using the input from machine learning and artificial intelligence feels like the the real frontier of, of where the digital world is at the moment. That when you get that combination right, then really quite magical things can happen. Uh, now, you've mentioned a few of the, the companies in the portfolio, and some of them will perhaps be familiar to MEX listeners because uh, you're an investor in Duke Deck, which uh, we interviewed the CEO, uh, Ed Rex, um, in a previous episode of the podcast. And um, Andrew Muirwood, who's been involved with MEX for some time, um, is with Judil, another of your portfolio companies. Others we've come across, uh, like Gluru, um, have all participated at, at MEX. But uh, can you... Um, pick out an example where you've seen a, a really good um, uh, bit of integration between those those two practices, if you like, where people are combining that machine learning um, and combining the user-centered design approach to create a, an experience, which is great in the sum of its parts. Is there um, a particular one in the portfolio where you feel like there have been some leaps made forward in that recently? Um you know, I think there's um, th- there's some examples of uh, specific features that have been worked on using using that principle within the portfolio. I mean, there's other businesses outside of it that I think perhaps demonstrate it better. Um, but um, but from within within the portfolio, a business called uh, Mapillary, which is um, which is essentially capturing uh, images um, from a community of, uh, of philanthropically minded individuals who want to. Essentially, cycle around and um, and otherwise navigate uh, their world and, and take pictures of the paths that they navigate, um, and then upload them into into the mapillary system, which then takes those photographs and essentially stitches them together and creates a three D visualization of that path. So one could think about uh, this business as an open source um, street view product that instead of using expensive camera rigs um, that are only really in the privy of, of a few companies in Google, um, but using and the massive proliferation of, of mobile phones to create that imagery to cre- to essentially um, arrive at a, at a similar result. And, and one of the features within that product is is the ability to recognize um, traffic signs and um, uh, and other and other signals that that are present um, on roads. And and so so the the team has built um, a traffic sign classification system which can automatically recognize um, those signs in a, in a sequence of images, um, and then uh, and then essentially provide that to to their to their end users. But um, but there's there's only so far um, that the system can go in terms of accuracy of of correctly identifying where those signs are and what those signs actually represent. Um, and because they have a large community of users, there's a great opportunity to really leverage that community to, to start to correct the mistakes that the algorithm has, has outputted um, in order to increase the accuracy going forward. And so, so they've created a, a simple game that was um, provided out to their users, which is um, 
essentially spot the, the, the problems in, in the results that, that the automatic traffic sign classification system has, um, has, uh, has outputted. So a user will, uh, will click on the areas where there's mistakes or identify signs that weren't correctly, um, identified or identified at all. Um, and then, um, and essentially provide, um, that oracle, that, that, uh, that ground truth, uh, result. And you can see that having a couple thousand people complete the game, that the accuracy um, improvement is just absolutely material um, to, to what was uh, what was possible before. And I think it just shows a great example for for um, for you know a machine system taking you you know seventy percent of the way towards a hundred percent accuracy, um, and then that that extra bit, which is otherwise impossible to do unless you have. Uh, you know, millions and millions of photographs, and even then, uh, impossible to get as close to 100% accuracy as you can. But if you involve a user in a in a loop where there's fulfillment for the behavior that the user wants to be rewarded for, um, you can really get as close to 100% as, as as possible. So, in some ways, it sounds um, like you know there are these hybrid models uh, emerging like that. I mean. What sort of percentage of the companies that you're working with in this area are using that kind of hybrid approach of both manual user involvement and um, the, the the more automated artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think um, it's it's something like you know three quarters of companies do, uh, do that, and it sort of depends on what products they're they're building. Um, but but another good example is in the um, is in the online fraud detection arena where essentially the problem is trying to identify whether a customer that's transacting through a website or booking a taxi on Halo uh, is using a stolen credit card or not. Um, and so, so there the, the, the status quo is really having a fraud team that's, that's identified um, fraudulent transactions before and then looked upstream of the transaction and identified what behaviors um, they think would uh, classify or were the reason why that transaction was fraudulent. And then seeing that event occur more and more times and then encoding a rule um, to, to spot that problem and then uh, blocking every transaction that, um, that, uh, that satisfies that rule. Um, and so that's, that, that's fine. And there's, there's definitely rules which are, which are important to, to, to persist in the future, but there's certainly a, a huge gamut of cases where you perhaps don't have enough examples or you just haven't been able to, to pull out the underlying features that were responsible for making a transaction fraudulent or not. And that's where uh, machine learning and, and graph theory and other technologies can be used to, to supplement um, human rules. And so so our portfolio company, Ravlin, that does exactly that. It's, it's really empowering um, people who fulfill the fraud detection function within uh, e-commerce companies um, to have an extra layer of protection, which is provided by machine learning on top of the rules that have been created by them. Um, and then as soon as you start to involve that, that expert who's been spending you know, most of their career trying to spot fraud um, in the process, you start to you know, learn from their experience and improve your, your system beyond what could possibly be and be achieved by by simply observing from data and trying to make your own decisions. It seems it seems pretty fascinating to me that you can apply these AI techniques across pretty much everything. I mean, every sector uh, can be or will be impacted uh, from what I'm hearing from you um, by by these techniques. And um, we we talked about the replacement of human labor earlier on in in in, in the podcast and. Um, I'm wondering, does does that raise any alarm bells for you at all? Um, you know, I think there's, there's there's certainly some areas which uh, some areas of, of the economy where um, jobs are more likely to be replaced by by machines, but and, other, and others which aren't. And you know, there's a brilliant study by um, academics at Oxford a few years ago um, that looked into this on the basis of tasks that were described in job descriptions. And which tasks could are, are better or or less well suited to um, to machine automation, but but really I think um, in, in the long run, you know, technology has been a net creator of jobs, um, and I think it can only really you know liberate um, humans in those jobs to be able to focus on tasks that are more complex and are otherwise not achievable by the current state of the art. Um, you know, no one likes to repeat mundane, laborious tasks 
over and over again. You know, that's probably one of the one of the biggest reasons for um, you know employee discontent uh, within a within a job setting. And so, I think as long as you uh, position a product to um, to enhance the fulfillment and the and, and and in the career development of somebody in a particular job by removing the requirement to undertake tasks that they otherwise don't want to do or uh, or otherwise make mistakes in just out of um, the fact that we're human and, and we get tired, um, then then I, I think we're I think we're fine. Um, you know, th- th- there will always be some jobs that, that that will be lost, but I think in the in the grand scheme of things, it's uh, it's positive for for liberating human creativity and allowing them to allowing us to. To, to focus on the things that we're really good at. Yeah, and I and I and I think that's that's right. Actually, I, I would tend to agree with you. And and even outside of of um, the workspace, I mean, domestically, I, I for example was was working uh, just not so much working, just but playing with a um, with an image that I was trying to retouch, not for work purposes, but just for 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 my own uh, pleasure. And I'm using a fairly old version of Photoshop, which. Um, uh, you know, I'm going going through and, and trying to fix pixels that are that are broken and there are scratches on 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 the picture. This is a picture that's 100 years old, um, and um, uh, it just just be, be so much easier if I could just uh, apply uh, a machine just to to, to fix some of the fiddlier bits that were just getting very very painful to, to correct. Mm. Um, and, and and it made me think a little bit when I I saw a recent post you put up on on LinkedIn. Uh, which which um, pointed to uh, a blog post from uh, Andre Karpathy, mm. um, who is a, a PhD student at Stanford on deep learning, and and there he's talking about um, selfies, um, and, and it was quite interesting saying you know you, you know what are what are good selfies and how do you make a good selfie, um, and and maybe you could comment on this, but it seems as though um, you know we might be able to to, to fix the selfies that we take that just make them more acceptable or just better uh, in general for uh, for our viewers. And so the whole process of creation and consumption, uh, which are themes that, that Marek and I talk about quite a lot, are, are, are improved, I think. And w- w- would you see that as right? Yeah, I, I think uh, the other, I, I do think it's right. And um, <clears throat> the other sort of theme that that touches on is, um, is by is by studying these, these massive data sets that essentially exemplify human behavior and exemplify what what diversity of of, um, of, uh, of outputs we can we can generate. So in the context of photography, you know, there's you know, every, you know, for example, everyone can take a photograph and, and we rank uh, we rank likes per photograph, and then from those likes we, we you know we determine that the ones that are liked the most are, are therefore the most popular. Like, what is it within those images that makes them popular? Um, which is the you know the idea of how to make a good selfie, and um, and if you if you show that photograph to to an uninformed uh, person from a you know f- uh, photography standpoint, um, you know they'll, they'll they'll try and come out with a description um, that can you know appropriately express what's going on in their mind. But it's it, I find it generally very difficult to to explain um, creatively what makes something good or bad. Um, Whereas if you talk to a photographer, you know, they might say, well, you know, this photograph, uh, you know, abides by the rule of thirds, um, you know, the person's not smiling, therefore, um, you know, it's a better portrait for, uh, photograph, you know, it's in black and white versus color, um, but give you a far more technical explanation. But, <clears throat> but even so, there's bound to be features embedded within that photograph that really distinguish it from being good or bad. And, and I think by, by studying that on a mass scale, a bit like what Car- Carpathia has done and, and others have Yahoo research have done, we can really, um, you know, extract those rules that are otherwise very difficult for us to even express. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's a really like fascinating, uh, you know, next subject in, in AI, which is, you know, not only is the field about embedding, um, human knowledge about the way we go about accomplishing tasks in the everyday world, but, but it's also, but by studying, um, studying those tasks, um, Using computer science, we can start to to learn even more about how we go about those tasks and uh, what makes things good or bad, for example. So, so that 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 fact of encoding systems and understanding what features are important for achieving the results we want teaches us more about what we knew about the problem in the first instance. Yeah, it seems like there's um, you know, a fascinating change going on here. Where when you think about some of the things we've 
been discussing and some of the, the sort of day-to-day tasks that you might engage with using digital tools at the moment. I mean, Alex, you gave the example there of the um, photoshopping the, the image. And for you as a user, you would have um, had a certain set of expectations around that interface. And depending on how it performed, you would have had a certain level of satisfaction with that interface and what it helped you to achieve. But they're all quite manual steps that you would have been going through to uh, to achieve that. And therefore, you have yeah, that's right. some expectations around that um, that particular UI as a, a tool for you, and you know, I think in some ways we almost need to think of these new techniques coming in around artificial intelligence and machine learning not just as another tool to rank alongside that, but a whole different kind of toolbox which is bringing along um, a very different set of approaches, which could well be complementary and probably will be complementary for some time um, to those more manual uh, interface methods that we've had. But increasingly, and probably um, you know, accelerating quite rapidly, we're going to find that these new uh, techniques that we can derive from some kind of artificial intelligence uh, are going to give us um, all kinds of, of new ways to, to approach um, what we do with digital devices, particularly around those areas of, of creation and, uh, and consumption that you were describing. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and um, you know, if we can if we can start off just by understanding what makes a good image, then the next step, of course, is that is then to fix it. Um, and and once we start talking about images, then then we can then eventually start talking about uh, about uh, moving images, and 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 so I I I wonder what the possibilities are in the long term for 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 filmmakers, for instance. Um, and and the, the possibilities of of uh, enhancing the creativity around around film. So uh, you know, watch this space. I think it's it's, it's fascinating. particularly as it starts to intersect with some of the new uh, consumption methods, which are, are coming on tap for that. Where if you think about what's happening around, for instance, virtual reality and the need to produce um, not just different types of, of content for people to consume compared to what we've been used to in the past, but also um, a whole magnitude um, of additional volume of that kind of content to be consumed. Uh, there could well be a role there, I think, for doing that in some kind of automated way, which goes beyond just going out and, and filming um, using traditional techniques. You know, there's in some ways uh, a sense that that was never going to be sufficient to gather the kind of volume of content which is now expected. Uh, and we may need to use these more automated techniques to do it. And I suspect yeah. there's also opportunities for, for you know, bringing, bringing back in another field of, of, of robotics where you, you may you might have uh, some machine that is is required to do um, some sort of work in in perhaps a, a place where humans can't go, whether it's deep underwater or or um, in in a conflict zone or, or you know where there's been a disaster of some sort. Um, and if they are able to not only to get better imaging but also to understand those images better. Um, and then to use that information to 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 understand their context and what they're trying to do better, then uh, we, we may see some some incredible um, uh, steps forward in in all sorts of areas where where humans actually just can't get involved and aren't involved right yeah, now. Um, all of the things I think we're discussing point to the potential diversity of applications for these different techniques. And it made me want to go back to something we touched on a bit earlier with you, Nathan, um, just as a, a final question to you about the importance of the community that is building up around these techniques of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And given the diversity of potential applications and you know, even just looking through the portfolio of companies that Playfair has invested in, um, there's a real variety there in terms of the areas that they work in. How important is that community and sharing the techniques between the different companies in helping the overall quality of this and the overall quality of experiences that ultimately these customers can deliver to consumers? How important is that community in making that happen? And you know, what are some of the things that you're planning to do to support that? Because I know it's an area you've been active in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think community is um, is is key for so many domains. Um, you know, and 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 really, knowledge sharing and knowledge accrual is is really the bedrock of uh, of innovation, um, especially in 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 emerging fields. Because 
those are typically ones where the practitioners are, are, are quite few and far between in terms of numbers and, and really, um, you know, sharing pitfalls of certain approaches and, and, uh, and advantages of others is, uh, is really seminal to, to getting, um, high value applications out into the public domain such that that value can be demonstrated to parties, which are, uh, perhaps more dubious or, or less early adopting, which then means that, you know, the cycles for adoption can then, can then be constricted. And I think there's, you know, there's no better example of that than, than in computer science because, you know, people in the academic domain will pre-publish work on archive. They'll talk about it very publicly on, on various sub forums in, in Reddit or Hacker News. Um, in the data science world, you know, Kaggle, this, um, community of over 500,000 data scientists across the world are, you know, given access to problems that you know, large companies will face that they otherwise don't have the human capital to solve internally. Um, and, you know, we're seeing, you know, fantastic results from, um, from individuals who come from, um, disparate fields, you know, not directly related to that problem domain, but are just given the ability to, to, to work on those problems by the fact that they're made public. Um, and so, so I'm a huge proponent of, of, of community. Um, and I think in our, in our industry, that is, um, venture and technology, um, you know, the two of them go, go really hand in hand because, you know, we see a lot of, uh, a lot of businesses that, that either succeed or fail. And, and our, and our appraisal for why that, for why that happens is, you know, very, I think, very valuable, um, insights for, for new entrepreneurs who are considering, uh, considering developing, you know, endeavors that they might have, working on in their spare time or at university and so so I, you know i try and do that through through a multitude of, of different channels you know one of which is partaking in discussions discussions like this which are you know, incredibly fascinating and really thought-provoking um that you know touch a certain segment of the community that is you know people interested in uh, in interaction design and creating you know compelling um, digital product experiences um and then I, you know, I engage with, um, with academics and undergraduates and postgraduates who are looking for, um, experience within smaller companies because they might not want to work for Google or Facebook, but have more responsibility, um, early on. So, you know, we engage with those parties as well. Um, and then, um, from a, from a higher level, we, um, my partner and I, um, engaged in, uh, organizing a conference that, uh, Mark, you came along to last year. Um, which, uh, it's called the Playfair AI event. And that was really bringing together 300 people, uh, broadly segmented into, into academics. So the professors who talked, uh, their students and postdocs, um, then the entrepreneurial communities. So these were technologists, whether they're engineers, data scientists, designers, marketers, um, working at smaller and larger companies. Um, and then financial services professionals from, um, from the venture, um, landscape, from the buy side. Uh, banking and hedge fund landscape from um, corporate innovation offices at, at, at larger public companies um, and then journalists as well because I think you know, involving the media into uh, into you know informed discussion is important for for the whole ecosystem because they're they're really the ones driving the message out to, to the general public um, and so getting that community together 300 people around an event that that spanned both applied academic research from you know, some top research labs at Imperial and UCL and, and Cambridge um, to demonstrate how some of the technology we're talking about in this podcast, like natural language processing, computer vision, and speech are, are really bleeding into applications in the public domain, um, which are then being explored by um, by entrepreneurs um, creating companies using those technologies that really demonstrate how we can um, extend um, functionalities that already exist in, in products and services or enable entirely new ones, um, you know, to fundamentally reshape the way we, we interface with our technology and the way that technology can, can help us, um, you know, accomplish challenging tasks that we face every day. Um, and so this, that, that's, that's probably one of the larger endeavors for the second year now. Um, the next event's on July 2nd. Um, and then, and two other aspects is, uh, so obviously creating, um, creating content and curating it because around this topic, because I find it's a great way to engage with, again, a multitude of parties, but get their opinions back so that, um, you know, I can learn from, from individuals who, who look at this problem from slightly different angles. Um, and then we also run a, a quarterly meetup called London AI, um, which has around 100, 150 people that come along to it, where we profile um, three or four speakers um, building uh, technology companies in the area. So we've had also um, 
um, founders like um, this from Magic Pony, um, Signal um, in, in media, um, and, uh, and a multitude of others to, to really engage people on a more regular basis than, than, than one time a year. So try and touch a lot of different angles really to, to, uh, to get at the different parties who would be interested in, uh, in, in creating value in this space. Well, it's great to see that broad and progressive approach to supporting the, the community out there. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, good things tend to happen when you get that breadth of participation. It's certainly something that we've seen with our MEX community over the years, you know, growing from a time when um, discussions about user experience were quite isolated and, and siloed specialist things to a time now 10 12 years on from when we started that where there are now so many people involved in that discussion and the broader it becomes and the more participants you have the more chance there is to make um, change which is actually going to have a major yeah, impact on, on yeah. users lives uh, and we've certainly found you know all the engagements we've had with you guys in the past around the events that you have done or people coming to participate from your portfolio companies at MEX uh, there always seems to be um, a little spark which happens when you get people who have the user-centered design expertise meeting with people who are at the cutting edge of what's going on within uh, artificial intelligence. So long may it continue. And thank you for taking the time to come and you know be part of that on the podcast as well. It's been great to um, to talk with you about it, and um, you know hopefully we can keep those conversations going into yeah, the indeed. future. Um, Alex, uh, were there any other things that you wanted to touch on before we finish up? I have one very brief question. Um, Nathan, do you think that every startup now should be incorporating AI into their into their systems? <laughs> if you want to attract uh, interest on investor deck, yes. Um, if you, uh, but, but, but more, more practically, um, I think you, you just need to consider what the, the right tool is for, for your problem. You know, we talked about uh, you know, AI being part of this expanding toolkit. Um, that technologists and product designers have to to build the experiences that they're that they're seeking, and and sometimes um, AI is the right way, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes heuristics are completely fine. Um, so, so I mean, you know, practically, I, I wouldn't do it just for hype because um, because if it's not key, you know, it, it won't be a differentiator, and and it won't be the reason why someone invests in you. But but if it is the right tool for the problem, then then absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. Don't forget, you can find show notes linking to all of the different things that we talked about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Uh, but Alex, Nathan, thank you both very much indeed for a fascinating discussion. And we will catch up again soon. And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Do please encourage your friends to subscribe and share the podcast with them. You can do so by searching for Mech's Design Talk in your favorite podcast player uh, or have a look at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section where there's a full archive of previous episode uh, and other ways to subscribe through iTunes or the RSS feed and various other methods. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.